The first reading comes from Job 19, 23 to 29. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, Yet in my flesh I shall, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold him, and not another. My heart faints within me, if you say how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword, for the wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to invite Josh Mackin to uh, come up, and Josh is going to give our Lent reflection this evening. Josh, can I pray? Please. Father in heaven, we thank you for Josh, and we thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight, and we ask for your Holy Spirit that we may uh, see your truth clearly, our need, your grace, in such a way that it brings about a transforming gratitude. So come and do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Josh. You may be seated. <clears throat> what a drag it is getting old. Mick Jagger wrote that. 1965, he was 23. <laughs> I can't help but wonder how he feels singing it now, still on the road with the Rolling Stones over half a century later. And I can't help but wonder how that lyric strikes you as we gather today on Ash Wednesday at the start of Lent, where in a few moments we'll hear the sobering words spoken over us, an echo from Genesis and Ecclesiastes, you are dust and to dust you shall return. Repent and believe the gospel. The truth is, all of us are dying right now. In fact, we were born towards death, born towards dying. St. Augustine, writing over 1,700 years ago, said, As soon as a person is born, it must at once and necessarily be said, he will not escape death. We can try to evade it all we want, but today's modern actuary tables are unanimous in agreement. We are timed. We are creatures in the process of a great falling towards death, enmeshed in a temporality that one day eventually runs out. What a drag indeed. So why remember our mortality, our finitude today? What's the point of dwelling on death here, now, at the start of Lent? Easter is the original Christian holiday, after all, the greatest and earliest pillar in the Christian liturgical calendar. The Feast of Feasts, celebrating, of course, Christ's resurrection, and of which every Sunday, the Lord's Day, as the early church called it, is a reflection, a mini-Easter. Tertullian and Augustine, writing in the 200s and 300s AD, claimed that the original Lent was observed by the apostles themselves, a 40-hour feast to commemorate Christ's death on Friday at 3 p.m., 
to his resurrection on Sunday at 7 a.m. And in early Christian practice, new converts to the faith prepared for baptism for Easter during this season, a momentous occasion when they were welcomed fully and completely into the family of the church. And of course, Christians who had repented of notorious public sins, we heard that earlier, uh, it's a technical term, I wonder why we don't use it so often anymore, uh, they were likewise received back into the church during this time period. And because the early church took conversion and repentance seriously, these new Christians and newly repentant Christians were expected to undertake a period of prayer, fasting, penitence, and preparation in the lead-up to the Easter season. By the third century, Lent had solidified as a 40-day period of preparation and penitence for the whole church. Forty is a significant number in the life of God's people, signifying the fullness of time, a transformative period that prepares God's people for what's next. We recall, among other things, Moses and Elijah's and Jesus's respective fasts in the wilderness. The 40 days when water covered the earth in the story of Noah. The 40 years when Israel wandered in the wilderness. In comparison, Ash Wednesday and the practices around Ash Wednesday come much later. Its origins are more obscure, more varied, more what we might call folk. It solidifies in the 10th or 11th century, perhaps and spreads throughout much of the Western church. But it's a curious thing that the service remains so popular, perhaps more popular now than ever. You can find Ash Wednesday services in Catholic churches, Anglican churches like ours, nowadays among Lutherans, Presbyterians, Baptists, and many other places up and down the denominational spectrum. In fact, the late Richard John Newhouse, a writer and priest based here in New York City, used to marvel at how popular Ash Wednesday was with New Yorkers. He claimed the city's churches were never more full than today, exceeding the attendance numbers even of Easter and Christmas. You yourselves may have been surprised to see ashen crosses on the faces of co-workers today and thought, really? You? I had no idea. <laughs> so how is it that a sobering reminder of our finitude and mortality can be so popular? Well, perhaps it's because when it comes to death, all of us have questions. In the profound and flinty book of Job, we encounter a man looking into the face of suffering and death, not unlike us, and asking austere and uncompromising questions. As the book opens, we are told that Job is a righteous man, successful in every way. But as the book opens, he's suffered sudden, comprehensive disaster. His sons and daughters are dead. His vast flocks are dead or stolen. His wealth is gone. His body is afflicted with terrible sores and he's in continual pain. And all of it occurs in one fell swoop. So in chapter 10, Job cries out to the God who made him. Why did you bring me forth from the womb? Would, I, would that I had died before any eye had seen me. And whereas I though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave, are not the days of my life few? Let me alone, that I may find a little comfort. Before I go whence I shall not return, to the land of gloom and deep darkness, the land of gloom and chaos, where light is as darkness. Why, Job asks, why me? On one level, of course, this cry, why me? is the cry of thousands, millions, maybe even hundreds of millions over the long years, 
a cry which is echoed and continues to echo from deathbeds across the world, in hospitals, in homes, in senior centers, on battlefields, in disaster zones, in times of peace and in times of war, and in every time and in every mood, in terror and resignation, confusion and fear. Why me? But surely we can uh, take that question, and surely, logically, reasonably, we can say, why not me? I'm reminded of uh, Hamlet, the great play, Shakespeare. Uh, you're not familiar, uh, Hamlet has lost his father, and he's grieving the death of his father. And his mother comes to him to comfort him. And she says to him, Thou knowest his common, all that lives must die, passing through nature to eternity. And Hamlet responds, I, madam, tis common. His mother Gertrude says, If it be, why seems it so particular with thee? I'm reminded, too, of the horrified Victorians of the 19th century in England when they first heard the observations of Charles Darwin, a man who claimed, for instance, that 75% of the bird population in England died every winter from starvation. And he concluded that those that survived were strengthened and their gene pool sort of strengthened the species. These, Victor these uh, Victorians heard this, and they found themselves in crisis, deeply troubled to discover that death was so terribly, so wantonly interwoven into the general way of the world. And returning to the book of Job, when Job's friends, too, come to him, Bildad, Eliphaz, Zophar, and eventually Elihu, they come and seek to rationalize the death and affliction that Job has suffered back to him. They explain the reasons for his suffering and the death of his children. They counsel him to accept the judgment and punishment of sin and death as the way things are. But we find something very bracing. Job will have none of it. He finds no comfort, no consolation or answer in the generality of death. It's commonness or in his friend's advice to accept death's abstraction into some principle or causality of justice. No. Job demands a personal response from a higher authority. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then from my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. And this, more or less, is the whole pattern of the book of Job. Job rejects again and again the easy answers and consolations provided by his friends. And he demands instead that God himself answer him. And in Job's rejection of easy answers, we find ourselves rooting for him, don't we? Because when it comes down to it, death is personal to us. Like Hamlet, we find death particular to us. And perhaps there's wisdom in the obdurate audacity of Job, in his urgency, in his demanding, perhaps shockingly to our sensibilities, that God give him a personal response. You know, at age 19, without warning, Augustine, the great theologian, his most beloved friend died. And in his confessions, Augustine writes about how appalled he was that the world could go on as if nothing had happened. For Augustine, death threw everything into question, even himself. He writes after the death of this friend, I'd become a great question to myself. 
For us human beings, the emphasis on being. It's as if existence itself is a question calling out for a personal answer. The I-ness of death sticks in our craw. Job, too, imagining himself in the gloomy realm of the dead, cannot imagine himself, if you notice, cannot imagine himself without that little eye of personhood. Let me alone that I may find a little comfort, he says. Before I go whence I shall not return. That little eye remains even in the land of darkness for Job. He cannot imagine his utter annihilation. And like Job, we too cannot help but wonder, what happens to this little eye? All that I hold dear, all my loves, my memories, every beautiful thing I cherish, every tear I've shed, my persistent sense of self, this very body, brain, lungs, arms, legs, all that is personal and dear to me, what becomes of it? Annihilation? Is there some measure of endurance or something else unimaginable? Who can give an answer? Well, here's one of the great wonders of Christianity. The great transcendent source of capital L life, God himself, has in fact condescended to give a personal answer, the most personal of answers. That response has its roots in Genesis, where we find something astonishing, the beginning of God's personal love story with mud. Here in the earliest chapters, we read that God creates humanity from the dust of the earth, Adam, the very first human being. In Hebrew, the name itself bears its origins with it, Adam, meaning earth, mud, dust, something our English word human too preserves from the Latin, hummus, hummus, earth, dust, human. In Genesis, God takes this lump of dust, this lump of mud, and draws astonishingly close to it. And his divine breath, close as a kiss, fills up Adam and gives life to what was dead and inert. And from here on out, this is what we see in the biblical vision, a pattern writ large across the history of the Bible, God drawing near to the dust of his creation and filling it up with life. We see this in Genesis 9 when God makes a covenant with Noah and all that lives on the earth, as we heard in our sermon series just a few weeks ago. And God makes it clear that he takes the death of his creatures personally. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. In other words, the destruction of God's creatures, God himself says, demands an answer. We see it again in the book of Job, where astonishingly, at the end of the book, God does in fact condescend to give Job his wish. In the immortal words of Job 38, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. That capital Lord there is our English way of translating Yahweh, God's intimate, personal name. But in the great unfolding of scripture, even that isn't close enough, not personal enough. And so later in the gospels, God comes down, takes the mud, the dust of his creation to himself, to his very being, and becomes one of us, fully God, fully man, in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But even this, still not personal enough, not close enough. Because this mud, this dust that is the body of Christ, scarred by death, nail-marked, is taken up into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. God's commitment to the dust of earth 
to Adam results in mud and dust in heaven. And in fact, this glorified Jesus is recognized by the wounds of his flesh. See, he says in the Gospel of Luke, see my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch, touch me and see. And so St. Paul is bold to say in response to questions of death, which arise again and again from the little flocks of Christians under his care. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Elsewhere he writes, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And still elsewhere, as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And so for the Christian, whatever can be said about the very personal question of what is to happen to me, to this little I that I am, is now not a question about me after all, in one sense, but a question about Christ. That is, for the Christian, whatever can be said in response to death is bound up with a person. And this church, this community, is the community that bears witness to this shared story this shared love story, and to this person, and to this commitment this person has to the dust of his creation. And so we return to dust and ashes in this Ash Wednesday service, and perhaps even return to the happy coincidence this year between Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. But at the risk of not giving death its due and skipping ahead to Easter, and we should give death its due. We should sit under its awful power if we are to take Easter seriously. And if Easter is to be the great gift and wonder and joy that it is. And yet, even so, your dust, to dust you shall return. But how much God is done for. How much God loves that dust for which you and I are. God has spilled his own blood for the dust of your creation. And this dust, which will be smeared on our foreheads today, may be a reminder to us, of course, yes, of our own mortality. But may it also be a reminder of this, and a sign of the dust that is at God's right hand even now. A reminder of the hands of his son, flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone, bearing the scars of his suffering and death in that flesh which we share with him. May we die into that life promised by his nail-marked hands. May we put our trust over the seen horizon of our lives with the hope that nothing is wasted. Knowing that nothing, nothing in an ultimate sense, not in the end, can touch us or harm us or keep us apart from him. And so may we work on behalf of others. May we know we can endure suffering, that we can move through fear and terror and depression, and loneliness, affliction, darkness and questioning, the valley of the shadow of death, and yes, finally death itself. Knowing though we cannot make these things go away, perhaps we can't make them better, knowing that we're mortal and finite and frail, but knowing that even so there's a peace that passes understanding. Because that which is most precious and dear to us is kept for us, most intimately and personally by Christ himself. Remember me in paradise when you come into your kingdom, the thief on the cross says to Jesus at the hour of his death. To which Jesus says so beautifully and intimately, 
Yes. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. To be remembered, remembered by Jesus. To be kept by him. Body and soul, our life is hid with Christ. This God-breathed mud that God so loves. And as he is, so shall we be. The poet Jared Manley Hopkins, a man deeply acquainted with death and depression, once wrote of the hope he cherished beyond the despair that so often plagued him in his life. He writes, See, not a hair is, not an eyelash, not the least lash lost. Every hair is, hair of the head, numbered. And he goes on. The thing we freely forfeit is kept with fonder a care, fonder a care kept than we could have kept it. Kept far with fonder a care, and we, we should have lost it. Finer, fonder a care kept. Where kept? Do but tell us, where kept? Where? Yonder. What high is that? Yonder. We follow now, we follow. Yonder, yes, yonder. Yonder, yonder. Yonder. Up through the wilderness of our finitude and mortality, up through the 40 days of Lent, up to Good Friday's cross, to Easter Sunday's empty tomb, and up, up to the ascension of Jesus' body into heaven, to where we find a hope personally kept for us by nail-marked hands that share the dust of our creation. And as he is, so shall we be. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.